thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, as we finish the chapter today. A Bible study that I simply entitled, Jesus Dies for the Sins of the World. And we are in that section where Jesus is literally hanging on a rugged, ragged Roman cross. And it's unfortunate because of jewelry and decorations and paintings, and even the most common picture of the cross, the crucifix, it's, because, it's unfortunate because of them that we've learned some things about the cross that really aren't true. They really aren't true. Especially the crucifix. Many people have been misled by the crucifix. It, while it is true that Jesus Christ hung on a cross... It's not true, well, is in the common crucifix, the body of the man that's hanging there is easily recognizable. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the man, Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, when he hung on the cross, he was unrecognizable. That, that he was so bloodied and so beaten and so disfigured that unless you knew him, you wouldn't recognize him. Another misconception about the cross is this is nice and neat. It's all perfectly smooth and nice and neat. No, the Roman cross was most likely a log or a shaved off splintered pieces of wood that would make a T that would also drive into the body when somebody would hang on there. It wasn't, it wasn't some clean, nice, pretty cross. Neither is the cross nice, clean, or pretty. It was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument to prolong death and make it hard for a person. It wasn't smooth, it was rough and difficult. Now, what I'm saying here is not to speak down on jewelry and to have a memory of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's merely to point out to you that some of the things that we remember in our minds aren't biblically accurate, and we need to be very careful there. For example, we were also, we were also taught... Those of you that were raised in the church, you sung a hymn, and it began something like this, On a hill far away. Well, that's actually not how people were crucified. People were not crucified on a hill. Now, you, you guys were like saying, please don't sing that whole song yet, I know. So I'm fine with that. People were crucified along the road, lined up. They weren't just grouped in threes. Rome would take men and they would line them up in every single Roman province. They would have them along the streets, along the roads. So that if you were taking your children to market and you were holding your children by the hand, you would take your children within eyesight, within earshot of those being crucified. Both those that were still alive and moaning in pain and agony on the cross and those that were dead. It was a very horrific Scene that was an offense to the senses. It wasn't as clean as we might think it is today. And that's where Jesus is here in John 19. He's been manipulated. The Roman government has been manipulated by the religious leaders of the day, unwilling to kill Jesus themselves with the attempt to keep their hands clean. They convinced Pilate to do it himself. 
And he was easily manipulated because of his his political leanings and trying to save himself. And it's just a complete mess. The government's involved. The religious leaders are involved. But more importantly, that's from the human perspective, but more importantly, God is involved. Because Jesus, the Bible says, was crucified from the foundations of the earth. This was no surprise to God. And nothing is wasted by God. Let's pick up where we left off, would you, in verse 28 of John chapter 19. After this, whenever you see a phrase like that, either after this or therefore, you want to go back and, and remember after what? Well, after our study last time where Jesus there in agony hanging on the cross is in great love taking care of his mom and handing her off to the care of John. After that, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The thirst of Jesus reminds us that he is fully human, because human beings thirst. It's natural. God in human flesh is hanging on the cross, thirsty. And they attempt to give him some sour wine here. Now in Matthew chapter 27, they tried to give him sour wine mixed with gall. Jesus tasted it and refused it. Why? Because he would not take any anesthetic to lessen the pain. Jesus took the full brunt of our sinful pain upon himself on the cross. Now the sour wine, just a little bit on his lips with a hyssop branch, was there to quench some of his thirst but never really satisfy. And he cries out there, it is finished. You guys that like to write in your Bibles, you might want to circle that. It's the Greek word tetelestai. You want to remember that word. Let me spell it for you. T-E-T-E. L-E-S-T-A-I, tetelestai. And it does mean, it's a good translation, complete or finished. It's actually from the same Greek word that you see back in verse 28, the word accomplished. The word accomplished is a different Greek word than the one used in verse 30, but it comes from the same root. It means completed. In the ancient Greek culture, they would use this word to describe servants completing a task. If you gave a task to your servant and they finished it, they would come back and say, Tetelestai, it's done. It's the same word that artists would use when they completed a sculpture finally. They would stamp it, Tetelestai, it's finished, it's complete. Merchants would do the same thing. When a transaction was completed between you and the merchant, they would give you something that said, like a receipt, like a modern day receipt that would say, Tetelestai, and that meant to be paid in full. And here Jesus is on the cross, and one of the last seven things that he says is, it is finished, to Tetelestai. Now before I explain that in more depth, let me give you the seven things Jesus says on the cross. There are seven statements as you compare the Gospels that Jesus says while he's hanging there on the cross. Number one, he says, Father, forgive them. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Second thing he says is, today you will be with me in paradise to the saved thief. Next to him, Luke 23, 43. 
Thirdly, as we learned last time, woman, behold your son, John 19, verse 26. Fourthly, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. Then he says in John 19, 28, I thirst. Then in verse 30, it is finished. And finally, number seven, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And as he says in verse 30, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. A reminder of his deity, that Jesus is in full control over this. He didn't go to the cross by accident or merely by manipulation. Those were the tools that God used to accomplish his will. Even as you see in your own life the things that are very discomforting and very difficult and hard to understand, you wonder what could possibly be the end result of this hardship, this crisis, this sorrow, this sadness. Well, while in the human realm we experience much pain and much stress and much difficulty, God in the spiritual realm is working all things together for the good for those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose. He's working them together. And that's where faith is so necessary, isn't it? Because if we walk by sight, we're going to be very discouraged by the circumstances of life. I mean, for some, it's been difficulties to the left, difficulties to the right. If you go backwards, there's problems. You're walking into problems, and you're wondering, what is going on, Lord? That's a good prayer to pray. But when you pray that prayer, God is activating and bringing out of you faith and trust to trust him in the things that you don't see. That God really is going to work things out for the good. He is going to take these difficulties and use them for his purposes. His purposes. A lot's going on in this declaration of it is finished. You know, as Jesus dies here, there's supernatural activity happening. The first thing that we know that's happening is that the veil, the thick veil that stood before the Holy of Holies and everyone else from entering in is being torn from the top to the bottom. Why? Because now God, through the death of Jesus Christ, is saying, access to me is now available. Come in through the death of Jesus on the cross. Another thing that's happening at this time is there's a massive earthquake going on. The veil reminds us that he conquers sin. The earthquake reminds us that the law is fulfilled. The resurrections, the third thing that's happening is graves are opening up. And people that were once dead like Lazarus are coming alive. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy scene that's going on. And the resurrections prove that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Let me, let me show you some depth of this in Colossians chapter 13. Would you turn over there with me? Colossians chapter 13. Notice with me some of the depth that's happening right here at the death of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse, well pick up with me in verse 13. Paul is writing to the believers in the city of Colossae, and he says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you. What's your next word in your Bible? Having forgiven you all trespasses. Salvation is a whole package. Your past is forgiven. 
Your present is forgiven and your future is secured by faith, forgiven you all your trespasses. Notice verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Notice verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? His death on the cross. Verse 16, therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, the substance of your faith, the substance of your purpose, the substance of your forgiveness is of Christ. And the context is Jesus Christ's death on this Roman cross. Now notice verse 31 back in John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they had come to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. The Sabbath was a high and holy day. And for the Jews, the bodies must be removed from the cross. And having dead bodies hanging in the public area that was so close to the city in their mind would bring defilement. So they asked for them to be, their legs to be broken and to be taken down. And so each of the ones that were near Jesus in this crucifixion, their legs were broken, but when they came to Jesus, they noticed that he was already dead, and instead of breaking his legs, what did they do? But they took and speared his side, and out of his side came blood and water. Now why would, why would they break legs of someone that is crucified? How would that hasten death? Well, I want to get into your mind how they would put a man on the cross. They would put his feet on top of each other and drive the stake through both of his feet. And he would be on sort of a ledge with his arms hung out like this. And as he, he would be beaten and bloodied already because they would scourge him beforehand, he would hang and the common death of crucifixion was suffocation, an inability to breathe, and water filling in the lungs. And what would happen with the person being crucified, which would naturally happen when their legs were up, they would try to get as much strength as they possibly could to get just a little bit up, take a couple breaths, and come back down. And knowing human nature, that's how crucifixion was designed, to prolong death. Few people would just take it. They would push up and come down and push up and come down. By breaking the legs... They would have no ability to push up anymore and death was imminent. They would just hang and suffocate from the fluid collecting in their lungs. But by the time they come to Jesus, there was no need to break his legs because he was already dead. Instead, they pierced him. 
Now remember last time in our study, we were introduced to a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon was told and given a promise that he wouldn't die until he saw Messiah. There was Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus into the temple. It was declared that this was Messiah, and he began to rejoice, and he had a conversation and a prophecy. He prophesied, speaking forth the word of God directly to Mary. And remember what he told her? He told her that this son of yours is going to lead to the rising and fall of many and a sword will go right through your heart, symbolically. Now, some commentators suggest, and we don't know for sure, because there's no way to know the gospel record doesn't give to us, but some commentators suggest that in that piercing of her heart happened at the same time of the piercing of her son's side, that that was the worst time for her in this whole environment, watching her son die such a horrific death. We don't know for sure. But we do know this. The scene around the cross is not a clean scene. It's not an antiseptic scene. It's not even anything that we could possibly grasp and paint or make a piece of jewelry or have some kind of decoration. The cross is a bloody scene. It is a horrific, torturous scene filled with pain and sorrow and desperation. Supernaturally, things are happening all over There was even darkness while Jesus hung on the cross. Deep darkness. And they didn't break his legs because according to verse 33, he was already dead, which confirms verse 30 that he gave up his spirit. John's trying to show us and remind us that Jesus died a real physical human death as a sacrifice in exchange for you and me. To prove it, it's mentioned that blood and water came out, which some suggest that the piercing went right into the heart and Jesus dies of a broken heart, or he is dying because of a broken heart as the pierce comes into his side. And then Paul, I mean, John says in verse 35, he says, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. I think many of us have been in this place before because John's writing it down. He's giving you the testimony. He says, you got to believe it because I'm writing it down for you. you got to believe me because I was there. And I'm sure there are times in your life when you're sharing with folks and you're trying to describe to them what God has done in your life. You're trying to describe to them who you used to be and who you are now. You're trying to describe to them what kind of, how God used a certain Bible study or a certain song in your life. And there's great resistance. People don't believe you. They don't want to believe you. And then you come back with something. No, no, I'm telling this right now. I'm telling you because it's true. I was there. I experienced it. God changed my life. One of the greatest tools in your toolbox in serving and loving others is your testimony. The testimony of an eyewitness, seeing your mom saved or your dad saved, seeing God rescue your child or bring a prodigal home, your own personal testimony of who you were there. You know, when I'm sharing my various parts of my testimony, I get deeper into some things. People often will say, I don't believe that. I don't see that in you. And I'm like, bro, believe me, I was there. This is my life. And if I was so bad that I don't remember, Marie is always there to remind me. She was there. There are always those that say, yeah, I remember. 
the radical change in your life is nothing short of a miracle. You're right. Salvation is a miracle in our lives. Which is why it doesn't make any sense for you to go back and live the way you used to before you got saved. It doesn't make any sense for you to go back and have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and you're so unpredictable and you're so untrustworthy. We never know. It's not from the Lord for you to go backwards into that life of sin. You've been delivered. And so what does John say? Hey, I'm testifying to you and my testimony is true because he who knows it's telling the truth. <laughs> You know, because people always say, oh, that's just a bunch, the Bible's a bunch of fairy tales, you know, a bunch of fairy tales. Listen, fairy tales don't save people, but God does. His word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I've never, never met a person saved by a fairy tale, but I've met thousands of people saved by God through his son, Jesus Christ. These are no myths and no fairy tales, but the truth of God's word. And notice, sometimes as you are giving your testimony, you feel like you have to defend yourself You feel like, well, no, it's true. I was there. I'm telling you the truth. Just remember to do it for the right motives. Notice the motive in verse 35, so that you may believe. You may become so defensive and go, you might take offense that somebody calls you a liar or doesn't believe you or makes fun of you. And your defense might all be self-protective. Make yourself of no reputation. There's no need to protect yourself. The reason you're sharing is so that you might believe. If you end up making it all about yourself, you're going to lose a lot of ground in someone's life because it's not about you and not about me. We're to what? Absorb or take that in. We're to make ourselves of no reputation and allow the mockery and allow the things that are coming our way. Why? No, I'm telling you so that you might believe. And I'm not going to stop telling you that you might believe because that's the key and the greatest need of anyone is that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, was accomplished through God's greatest deed, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his soon resurrection. Notice it says in verse 36 and 37 that more scripture is being fulfilled. Everything about the life of Jesus, so many times, hundreds of scriptures, as hundreds of prophecies being fulfilled. Now, verse 38 as we close. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, marked these words, but secretly. Why was he a secret disciple? For fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, another secret disciple, I believe, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and about a, of about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We're introduced to these two men that at least one of them, Joseph of Marathia, is introduced as a secret disciple a secret disciple of Jesus Christ, which is really an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't come together. It doesn't fit to be a disciple of Jesus and also keeping it secret from others. But there is possible because of fear. And he had a really good fear here. 
He had a really good fear because for a follower of Jesus Christ in this culture, in this day, he would lose everything, literally. He would lose his job. He would lose his identity. He would lose his family. He he would lose his ability to be a part of the community. He would lose everything. And he would have nowhere to go. And so Joseph kept it close until finally he couldn't any longer. Finally he couldn't. And Nicodemus, we were introduced to him many chapters before. It's because of Nicodemus, if you weren't with us in those studies, it's because of Nicodemus that we're given, uh, because his questions of Jesus, that we today have the most famous Bible verse in all of history. The verse that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That was an answer that Jesus gave to a man by the name of Nicodemus when he came with questions about salvation. You can thank Nicodemus for that. And you probably know what chapter the story of Nicodemus in. What chapter is that true story found in the Bible? Just say it out loud. John chapter 3. Now, I was looking back recently. We started studying the Gospel of John about three years ago. So many of you weren't with us there, but we're on study number 99 today. So if you want to go back and listen to the previous 98 studies, they're all up on the web. And you can go back because it's a fascinating insight on this man, Nicodemus. No longer is he keeping it a secret. The death of Jesus Christ has captivated them once and for all. Joseph comes and says, I want to bury him and give him a burial. And Nicodemus says, I want to make sure his body is taken care of. Secret disciples, no more. Secret disciples, no more. But thinking of secret disciples... It reminded me that there are actually two kinds of disciples when it comes to secrets. Secret disciples and disciples that keep secrets. And neither one of them are from the Lord. Maybe that's you today. You're the secret disciple where you're embarrassed and ashamed of Jesus Christ. And God is going to bring you to that place finally where you no longer keep it a secret. A lot of it has to do with our culture, the way we were raised. The way we were raised, especially my dad, my dad was like this. Politics and religion are private matters. Now, politics these days aren't so private anymore, but religion seems still to be. Where it's just my religion is between me and God and it's not supposed to be public. But that too is not found in the scriptures. Your relationship to God was intended to be public. It's intended to be known and shared and shouted abroad. When, when Jesus summarized the law, when he summarized the scriptures, he said this, you're to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not only, to, the love of God is not just to be experienced, but to also be expressed. But there's also another disciple, and that is maybe you're here today and you're a disciple that keeps secrets. Secrets. The kind of secrets that you would put in a shoebox and tape and put at the back of your closet, hidden away. The kind of disciple that stops at different places on the way home and is a little bit late but doesn't want to share where you've been stopping. The kind of disciple that does things on the side, doesn't tell the boss, knowing that he or she is breaking the law. 
The kind of disciple that is so tech-savvy that you know how to work around all the different browsers, and you know how to clear the history, and you know how to VPN behind something, and you know how to secure and put in a folder that nobody can go, where nobody can get into, and it is secured with passwords and clicks, and, and nobody knows because you've got it all hidden away. You're a disciple that keeps secrets and living in the shadows. And that's not from the Lord. I mean, if you're that kind of person, I mean, because I recognize that in our fellowship, there are a lot of smart people. You guys are incredibly intelligent and love God. And, and you're able to hide things on the computer and you're able to use your phone this way and you're able to get around and, and people around you don't know as much as you do and you're able, and, and, and you're able to hide something in that corner of the, of the loft or the corner of the half basement that you have. You're able to get around these things. You're able to time it just right so nobody really asks questions and you're able to lie your way out or, or minimize. You're, you're able to, to get through because you're a smooth talker and, and, and if, if you're here today and you'd say, you know, Ed, I, I'm I'm, I'm hiding things and just everything's just fine because I'm getting away with it. Like none of us know. As I'm talking right now, your heart starts to skip a little beat. Wondering if I know. I don't know. I don't know. But if you think you're hiding anything, you're lying to yourself. You're not hiding anything. Okay, so we don't know because we check your browser, we don't see anything. Oh, we don't know because that folder's encrypted and you can just delete it and you know how to change a hard drive. And you know, you know maybe that's true. And maybe there is something and I'm not going to go through your closets or look through your cabinets. You're right, I won't know. And, and all the people that have access aren't going to know either. And, and you're like, well, then I'm confident I'm getting away with it. You're not. You're lying to yourself. Because the Bible couldn't be clearer. Not only are there not to be secret disciples, but there are also not to be disciples that keep secrets because the Bible says that everything in our lives is naked and open to God. There isn't anything hidden from God's eyes. And you're only prolonging the pain and the difficulty with your spouse or with your kids or with your friends or with yourself thinking that you can continue to hide secrets and get away with it. You know, as a secret disciple, you kind of got this guilt and condemnation because you have the opportunity to share, but you don't share. And then you beat yourself up and go, man, why am I so afraid to share? Why am I? And, and you just kind of walk around with this heavy burden. But if you're a disciple that keeps secrets, the burden's even worse because every single day you wake up to a new lie and a new deception, and you got to cover up one to cover up another. And then you get that, that, that sense of the Holy Spirit, okay, just come clean today. And you go, no, I'm not coming clean today. And your heart gets harder, and layer after layer after layer to what the Bible describes that you will sear your own conscience with a hot iron. Neither one is from the Lord. God's desire is not for us to be secret in our relationship with him, and God's desire is for not for us to keep secrets from one another. But rather, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. But if we live in the shadows, you know, the Bible describes God as light, and with God there is no shadow of turning. No shadows with God. No little nooks and crevices where you can hide things. God is light, and he sheds light on everything and everyone. We don't want to live in the shadows. 
We're believers in Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been freed. Now that freedom gives us the ability to have a real relationship with one another based on the facts, based on the truth, based on our own imperfections, the love of God being the lubricant that keeps our relationship going. Forgiveness flows when we confess. You'll never experience forgiveness. You'll never experience the full weight of being forgiven until you confess and repent. And that's just the word of the Lord for some today. It's easier to look at the secret disciple. Oh, no, that's not me. But what, if, what about the disciple that keeps secrets? This is such an important principle for us here at Calvary. That with the children, both in Sunday school and also the Christian academy we have here, with the children, we do not encourage a culture of secrecy with kids. We don't encourage the kids to keep secrets. If they begin to use that word and, you know, teacher, teacher, can I, keep, give you a, can I tell you a secret? Or, can, you know, can you keep a secret? Or, pastor, you know, I've got this secret. We're going to take that very gently and we're going to turn around and say, you know, we don't keep secrets here. I'd love to hear a surprise. I would love to hear what's going on. But, but we teach the kids, don't, we, as young as we can, that's our way of helping the kids understand that principle. You've got to walk in the light. Be truthful and honest with everything. Let's not hide anything from each other, but let's walk in the light. And we, as children of God, would do well to follow the same thing. There's no secrets. And finally, for Joseph and Nicodemus, they're done. No more secrets. We're casting our whole life in with Jesus. Joseph, he provides the tomb. Nicodemus provides the preparation Let me quote to you how it's described, what was happening here at the end of chapter 19. The custom, I quote, was to use about half the body weight of spices. So we can guess that the Lord Jesus weighed about 200 pounds. They would prepare the body by rubbing it with myrrh and aloes, then wrapping it with linen strips. That would seal it, keep out the air. They would begin with a finger, and then they'd wrap all the fingers that way, then they would wrap the hand, then they would wrap the arm, and then the whole body. In other words, they wrapped the body of the Lord Jesus very similar to that of a mummy. John mentions specifically that they wrapped the body in linen cloths using the spices because that was a very important detail for him. And they buried him in this tomb, it says in verse 41, that was in a garden. If you go to Israel with us next February... Our last stop on the tour will be no, is a place known as the Garden Tomb. It's right up against a, a large hilly area that if you look at it, it's not so much now because of the erosion, but they have some pictures of that, of that hill where if you look at it at right the angle, it looks like a skull, Golgotha. And then down below that, in this little valley of an area, is a little tomb and they walk in, they, they give us a presentation and they show us how this place outside of the original city walls up against Golgotha. Uh, it's a, been a, a very busy commerce area. Right now there's an Arab bus station down there that's very loud and noisy. Then they put a Muslim cemetery up there attempting to desecrate the whole area. But this garden is like a, a small little place of quietness. And that's the last place we, we take communion there. We do a little Bible study there. We walk into that empty tomb. It's empty. We don't know for sure if that's the tomb. We don't know for sure, although there's a lot of evidence pointing to this area, a lot of evidence. But I do know this. If we ever found the actual tomb and that we knew for sure 
It was just carved in the Jesus was here. You know, if it was just, if that was the tomb, I'll tell you this, it's empty because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. He's alive today. In the next couple weeks, in our next couple studies, it's going to feel like Easter here because we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus. I know Easter, we celebrated a couple weeks ago, but in reality, every day is resurrection day in our lives. We walk in the newness of life. And let's not forget here as we leave the cross and Jesus in the tomb that the crucifixion of Jesus was an extremely significant event. What was lost in the Garden of Eden by Adam and his sin was regained on the cross by Jesus Christ, who's referred to as the new Adam. It's here on the cross that our salvation is purchased. Here on the cross that the righteous demands of God were met as the full weight and wrath of God. His judgment upon all of humanity's sin was poured out on innocent Jesus, God in human flesh. And it wasn't a shock to him. He knew. It wasn't a surprise. He willingly, Jesus wasn't manipulated or tricked. He willingly went to the cross for you and me. And from the very moment of his birth in Bethlehem to the day that he died, Jesus lived in the shadow of the cross. And I would say this, if you're going to choose to live in the shadows, then live in the shadow of the cross. Let that loom in your life continually. Not the shadows of hiding things and dishonesty, the shadows of game playing and trying to get away with things. That's not from the Lord. But in the shadow of the cross, knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Yes, yes, let's walk in the shadow of the cross. Amen? Lord, Father, friend, just reminded of this very truth for three services now, the devastating effects of walking in shadows and hiding things and lying and being deceptive. It's so painful, God. Such a painful sin, both for the person that's deceptive and the people that they're deceiving. Recognizing that it is such a heavy topic today, I pray for the freedom and release of those that have something to confess. I pray that you would empower them to come clean. I pray that you would stop them in their tracks, those disciples, those followers, that they would deny themselves, take up the cross and follow you, that they would follow you in integrity and, and, and cleanness. I think of Zacchaeus who came clean and paid restitution and it was done, it was over with, never to be visited again. And some are just prolonging the agony in their lives because they're not willing to bow the knee to you, God. They're not willing to come clean. They're not convinced. Even today, they are unconvinced that honesty is the right direction. And I pray for them that, Lord, you would soften their hearts. I pray, God, that you would penetrate those hardened hearts, exchanging them a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I also have a burden today, and I didn't have this in other services, but today I have a burden for those that have been lied to and the pain that they feel, that you would bring comfort into their hearts right now, Maybe it brought back some memories that, that are trying to distract them and discourage them, Lord, because they've been lied to and they were hurt deeply. Would you please minister and heal that wound, God? Will you remind them of your faithfulness? 
that you are also Jesus. You were lied to. You were betrayed. You were taken advantage of. You were spit upon. You were lied about. You were slandered. You were killed, murdered. Would you bring comfort to those on the other side of an injustice today? Would you protect them and prevent them from taking things in their own hands, please? Would you pour out your spirit in our church? Would you make us strong followers of you? Would you help us not to be secret disciples or disciples that keep secrets, but that we would just live for you and enjoy you in these days in which we have left? We don't know how many days we have left, but we do know we have today. And today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, I pray for those listening in, both on the radio and here in the room and downstairs in the overflow room, maybe even sitting in their car right now in our parking lot or on the street, not, not so shamed, so guilt-ridden that they wouldn't walk into a church building, but they're hungry for you, God. They're hungry for you. They want the freedom that comes by relationship with you. They want the forgiveness of sins. They don't want, they don't want some fluff Uh, some falsehood. They want the reality. And maybe they're here in this room, God. I pray you draw them to yourself right now. Please, Lord. You've already been working on them, and today's the day they'll finally surrender to you. And while the church is praying, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do just that. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God has got your number. He's revealed his love to you. How can you not be just overtaken by the thought of this man, God in human flesh, hanging on a cross for you, dying a horrific death for you, even when you don't deserve it? Of course you don't deserve it. None of us do. None of us deserve that exchange. And if you're here today and you say, Ed, today's the day I want to follow God. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. I want to pray and lead you in a prayer because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to see that verse lived out in your life today. So if you're in front of me in this room, and you just know today's the day you need to make that decision, would you just stand to your feet? No more secrets. You won't be a secret. This will be a public, public step on your part. God bless you. And I mean that in every sense of the word. God's blessing would rest upon you. Who else would say that's me? today in this moment I realize that on the radio we can't see you in Texas Hawaii or New Jersey Philadelphia we can't see you but God knows he loves you so much so that he would use even technology to reach your heart and your mind. God bless you. Who else would say that's me? Today. Today's a day. It's a high and holy moment, church. A lot of wrestling, a lot of spiritual warfare going on because it's a life change. I see you in the back. God bless you. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your family. It's going to change you. You're going to learn what it means to live a life of openness and honesty, a life surrender to God, your creator, a life that 
Only God still knows what he wants to do in your life. And so, uh, church, go ahead and open up your eyes, look around. On this side over here, there's some people standing. If you guys want to lay hands on them, uh, on the back over here, um, there's a kiddo back there. If you want to lay hands on him, you guys can get up in the back section here. And I, don't, be, don't be embarrassed. This is the family of God. This is, uh, this is your new family. And we just want... So somebody, you guys in the back over there, back right where I'm looking right there, there's a little kiddo standing there behind you in the back. Thank you. Back row over there. And, and then you guys be responsible to come up and get the packet with them. Would you please pray with them and encourage them if he's, you know, he's comes with his parents or his grandparents and you guys right here. And so you guys, are, you guys that um, go ahead and open your eyes, look around. You, there's a group here and a group back there. You can just lip, put your hands on them by a distance like this. And then some of you guys be thinking of the ones on the radio and on the internet right now. And those of you that are responding, you can, you can confess to God this way. You can talk to God. You can repeat after me. Dear God, I admit that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe, Jesus, you live for me. You died for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I dedicate my life to follow you from this day forward. Help me to turn away from my sinful past and live for you. And God, I feel a special burden, Lord, that you would rescue families today, that you would bring prodigal kids home, that you would restore what the enemies tried to destroy, what he's tried to completely, absolutely destroy, that in an instant, miraculously, you could restore it. I pray for the heavy hearts that are here today. A lot going on, a lot of fears, a lot of anxieties. I pray for that frustration. Someone just came in today and they're so frustrated what's going on in their life. Lord, that you would ease that frustration. And for these new believers, God, as they think things are great things are happening, and they are, they're going to be met with great difficulty and spiritual battle that aren't, isn't easy to understand. But you would guard and protect them, Lord. Strengthen them and fill them with your spirit today that truly anyone that comes to you, you will know why is cast out. And we dedicate ourselves to following you fresh and anew in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.